0: Welcome to part two of the Prevention, Diagnosis, Treatment and Following Heart Failure webinar recording. This webinar was recorded on the 5th of November 2021. Good evening to everybody. Best wishes from In this video, I will talk about the management of chronic heart failure in outpatient clinic. And here is my agenda. I'll begin with how to take history from a heart failure patient and what kind of questions should we ask to figure out the patient's condition. And in the second part, I will discuss the bedside cardiovascular examination, especially the congestive findings in heart failure. Afterwards, I'll say a few things about which blood test should be ordered and how to review the results. And finally, I will go through the medical management in light of recent European guidelines. Well, before starting this chapter, I have to admit that taking an amnesis is not my favorite thing. For some reason, Patients like to talk to me about their family problems, their friends, and even about their pets, instead of telling me what I want to learn. So if you don't have unlimited time, please take the control of the conversation and kindly ask just to answer your questions. So here I give you two crucial questions to ask. Firstly, we should learn if your patients have new onset symptoms like angina or palpitation and if there is any progression in previous symptoms, like worsening of dyspnea. If the answer is no to both questions, it is very likely that the patient is in stable condition. But if the patient is describing, let's say, nuanced chest pain, this might be suggestive for coronary ischemia. Or if the patient complains of palpitation, this might be a sign of an arrhythmia. On the other hand, progression of shortness of breath may tell you something about the worsening of heart failure. And the second question is a straight one, can you lie flat? If the answer is no, the patient must have orthopnea. In this condition, patients cannot sleep without a couple of pillows under their head. This is a serious symptom suggesting decompensated left heart failure. Sometimes they can lie flat at first, but wake up with a feeling of suffocation after a few hours. This is paroxysmal nocturnal dyspnea and It's also a sign of advanced heart failure. So at the end of these questions, we should come to a point that we can roughly figure out how sick the patient is. Of course, we need to confirm these findings, these symptoms with more objective data, and that's why we do physical examination. When we are at the bedside, the first thing to do is to check the vitals like blood pressure and the pulse rate. The blood pressure target in heart failure patient is less than 130 over 80. So, please don't let your patient's blood pressure stay over this valley. Remember that high blood pressure contributes to the progression of left ventricular dysfunction. And these are the first-line antihypertensive drugs. But if patient's blood pressure is still high under this treatment, you may safely add amlodipine as a second-line drug. On the other hand, rapamil and diltiazem are contraindicated since they depress left ventricular contraction. When it comes to heart rate, we should not neglect the pulse check. If the pulse is not regular, it could be a sign of arrhythmia, like atrial fibrillation, and we need to take an ECG in such patients. Perhaps the most productive or satisfying part of the physical examination is evaluation of the fluid retention or congestion. You know, when heart fails to pump the blood backs up in the body, there are four regions of interest why we are looking for the evidence of congestion. These places are the neck, the back, abdomen, and the leg. I know, it rhymes like a poem. The neck, the leg, the back. Uh, okay, what we expect to see is pitting edema in the legs and acytis and hepatomegaly in abdomen and in auscultation, we can hear wet crackles or rails at the base of the lung, usually bilaterally. And in the neck, we can identify the jugular winds. All these are valuable findings, but the most reliable indicator of volume overload is increased jugular wind pressure. This is a very nice illustration. Here is the right atrium. As a continuum, you see the superior vena cover, and then comes the internal jugular wind. So, if something happens in the right atrium, we expect it to reflect backwards into the internal jugular wind. For instance, in heart failure, right atrium is overloaded, and consequently, there will be an increase in jugular pressure. So, by measuring the jugular wind pressure, we can figure out if there is a fluid retention or volume overload. And so, let's see how we non-invasively measure internal jugular wind pressure at the bedside. This is our patient. Firstly, we need to adjust the examination table to a 45 degree angle. Otherwise the result will mislead us. Then we find the sternal angle of Lewis and draw a horizontal line here. Later on, we should identify the highest level of internal jugular vein pulsation. And after measuring the distance between two lines, And you see how to measure it by using ruler. And if it is greater than 3 centimeters, it means that the jugular pressure is increased, which indicates volume overload. And now time has come for a question. And the question is, does the absence of congestion in examination means absence of congestion at all? Yes, you are right. It does not because approximately five liters of fluid may build up in the body without any evidence of congestion. So, there comes the new question, is there a way to diagnose latent hypervolemia? I think the answer will be much easier than you think. Actually, the only finding at the very early stage of fluid retention is sudden weight gain. And that's why we are asking our heart failure patients to monitor their waste regularly and report us if they gain five pounds or more in a couple of days. Now, let's talk about the laboratory assessment. This is the list of blood tests we should order in a follow-up visit, and regular monitoring of renal function is necessary for dose adjustment of heart failure drugs, including S-inhibitors, diuretics, and aldosterone antagonists. and Electrolytes abnormalities are common in heart failure, and one of the most we've seen one is the hyponatremia. In heart failure, hyponatremia is mostly due to hypervolemia. It is dilutional, which means that the reason is not sodium depletion but water retention. So, fluid restriction of one to two liters per day and use of loop diuretics are recommended treatments. There is a very common mistake has to stop all diuretics from facing with any kind of hyponatremia. Please don't stop loop diuretics because loop diuretics remove more water than sodium. That's what we want in dilutional hyponatremia. However, you can or you should stop thiazide diuretics since they excrete more sodium than water. Another problem is hypokalemia. And these are the measures to be taken, increasing the dietary intake of potassium, stopping thiazides, initiating aldosterone antagonists, since they spare potassium. And please don't initiate potassium supplements until the other measures have been failed and when the potassium level is not less than 3.5. One of the most neglected blood tests is ferritin level and transferrin saturation. And these guidelines recommend us to monitor anemia and iron deficiency because correction with intravenous carboxymaltase improves symptoms and reduces hospitalization due to heart failure. Okay, so how about the BNP or anti-proBNP? As you know, it's a very valuable biomarker in the diagnosis of heart failure. However, it does not help us to adjust our treatment strategy, so it is not recommended as a regular follow-up test. And when it comes to treatment of heart failure, European guidelines used to recommend three evidence-based medications to reduce mortality. These drugs were ACE inhibitors or RNA, beta blockers, and aldosterone antagonists. However, in 2021 guidelines, a fourth group of medication that reduce mortality has been introduced. This new medication is SGL2 inhibitors. SGL2 inhibitors are basically anti-diabetic drugs. However, studies in diabetic patients show that they reduce cardiovascular mortality, total mortality, and hospitalization for heart failure. And these results made us think that they are possibly not only an anti-diabetic, but also a heart medication. And accordingly, new studies were planned to evaluate whether SGL2 inhibitors can also work in non-diabetic patients with heart disease. And one of them was DAPA heart failure trial. And the research question was, could DAPA improve outcomes in patients with heart failure with reduced ejection fraction? And... This is the design of the DAPA-HF trial. There were 4,700 patients with systolic heart failure. As you see, non-diabetics were included as well. The patients were divided into two groups, and both groups were taking the best available therapy, including three life-saving drugs. Then groups were randomized to DAPA and placebo. The follow-up period was two years. And here are the results. If someone asked me to summarize the results in just three words, I would say wow, wow, and wow. Dear friends, the first wow is for worsening of heart failure, because DAPA significantly reduced it by 30%, and the second wow is for cardiovascular mortality, and DAPA significantly reduced it by 18%. And the third, WOW, is for total mortality, and DAPA reduced it significantly by 17%. As you see, the results are really, really impressive. And this slide proves us that DAPA is not only an anti-diabetic, but also a heart pill. As you see, DAPA equally improved outcomes in diabetics and. Diabetes, non-diabetics. It's a very, very good news. And another good news came from the safety data. The was not associated with serious adverse events, as you see in the table. No no major hypoglycemia, no renal adverse events. These are very important to us. These findings really does so much. And so, let's move the other slide, yes. One year after the DAPA-HF trial, another SGL-2 inhibitor, empagliflozin, was shown to reduce the rate of hospitalization in heart failure patients. So, after two big randomized clinical trials, SGL-2 inhibitors took their places in the heart failure guidelines, with class 1A indication, the highest recommendation class. And based on these recommendations, I have a request from you, my dear friends. If your heart failure patient is not taking one or more of these drugs, please initiate it. Please prescribe it. Believe me, this is the easiest way of saving a life. And this is my last slide. And before I finish my speech, I would like to emphasize that heart failure patients need you family doctors more than ever. And I'm not saying this to gain your sympathy. There are basically two reasons for this. The first one is the increased prevalence of heart failure with the aging population, and the global number is roughly 65 million. It's clear that cardiologists cannot handle this burden alone. And the second reason is the worrying change in the way cardiologists practice medicine. With the development of interventional cardiology, cardiologists began to think and act more like a surgeon than an internist. They have lots of interventions to and all they want to do is more interventions. So you may say, what's wrong with it? They are saving lives. Well, actually, I'm okay with interventions. Indeed, I do interventions as well. However, while happily living in the cat lab, they are getting more and more reluctant to manage chronic diseases like heart failure. Believe me, my fellows and residents consider follow-up of chronic heart failure patients a kind of waste of time. It's so sad. So when I said they need you, it was real. Thank you very much.